Amen. Let's have a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for this evening. We thank you, Lord, for an opportunity to gather and to worship you tonight, to get into your word and to discover what you have for us, Lord, that we might apply it to our lives by your grace and through your spirit, that our lives would be changed as we leave this place. Lord, thank you for the reality that you came to us. Uh, We did not deserve any of your grace. We did not deserve you coming to us and rescuing us in our state of sin and brokenness. But yet, Lord, you came willingly and joyfully. And so, Father, we again continue to celebrate that truth in our lives today. Father, again, thank you for tonight. We pray that you will be glorified in all that is said and done as we continue our study through Daniel and looking into the the things we find therein, Lord, that would help us to develop strong convictions as a follower of Christ. Would you give us wisdom in all of that? And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Kelsey, can you hand me that? Kelsey, can you hand me that podium right here, that stand? Thank you. Yeah, just set it down. Yep, that's good. I was going to use a different stand, and I went to pick it up, and the top came off, so I thought, well, that's probably not a good idea. All right. Well, we are, again, so thankful you guys are here with us tonight. So if you have a copy of God's Word, Daniel chapter 9. Daniel chapter 9 is where we're going to be. So you guys can open up there, and we'll read in just a few moments here and continue our study through uh, Daniel. And so if you've been in the children's musical practice um, and not able to be in our services over the last few weeks, we've been going through Daniel together and talking through some of the truths that we find therein about uh, developing strong convictions uh, in a world that does not encourage strong convictions. We want to develop strong convictions in the Lord. And some truths that we find through the story and life of Daniel, we develop those convictions. We can understand how to live that way and think the way that we should think as followers of Christ. And so we're in Daniel chapter 9. And again, as you guys, again, are kind of opening up there and turning there, uh, Daniel finds himself in Babylon. He finds himself in captivity. And we have talked much about what he's gone through so far. Everything from being thrown in the lion's den to being tried in regards to the diets uh, that the king lays before him and him rejecting that and declaring that he needed to stand on God's word and not violate the law that God set before him. And so we've covered a lot of ground in the book of Daniel, uh, in Daniel chapter 9, uh, this actually in the story takes place or occurs uh, in the first year of King Darius's reign. So this is shortly before or just after the events recorded in chapter 6. So this is kind of taking place in that first year. Um, a copy of Jeremiah's prophecies to Judah during the final days of the southern kingdom had reached Babylon. And Daniel read and studied it there. Daniel discovers that the length of the desolation of Jerusalem and the Judeans' exile would be 70 years. Then the exiles would be released and allowed to return to their homeland. So we see this in Jeremiah 25 and 29. Since Babylon fell in 539 B.C., and since Daniel had been taken captive in 605 B.C., Daniel calculated that the 70 years were almost over. And this brought Daniel to the reality that he would seek the Lord for restoration of Jerusalem and the return of God's people to their land. So Daniel's at a point where he's starting to realize, based on the prophecy of Jeremiah, that that this timeline of captivity is coming to an end. That they are getting ready to return. They're getting ready to go back into their homeland. Chapter 9, we spent some time on looking over the sins of the people. That rebuilding the worship system and starting to reestablish themselves in the land. It's brought to Ezra's attention that some of the very leaders of Israel, the princes, and even some of the Levites and scribes, and these religious leaders and political leaders are giving themselves over to marrying those who are not Jews. They're intermarrying with people that they should not have been marrying, that they're committing some of the very same idolatrous acts that led them to being taken captive. And, and Ezra was heartbroken over that. He said he couldn't believe that, that they would continue in that sin even though they just got rescued from that. So here Daniel is preparing to kind of mentally and spiritually the people going back into Jerusalem. And so we pick up in Daniel chapter 9, and here we see what Daniel's response is to this idea of going back, returning back to Jerusalem. So Daniel chapter 9, let's look at verses 3 through 6. So Daniel chapter 9, verses 3 through 6. And if I have a volunteer that would like to read, that would be awesome. I always love to have more people reading. 
uh, than just me reading the text. But if somebody would like to read Daniel 9, 3 through 6 for us, that would be awesome. Somebody would like to read that for us? Marshall? Awesome. Thank you, sir. So here we see Daniel's preparing, and he's, he's getting his heart and his mind set to go back. And the, these captives are returning from captivity. And, and we see here a principle that Daniel begins to put into place. And that principle is the idea of confession. We see Daniel confessing some things before the Lord. And, and this is, again, a curriculum that I came across here uh, about a month or so ago. And I love what it says here, kind of opening up this idea of confession. And it says this, many of us played hide-and-seek. When we were kids, we, we would do hide and seek and play that and try to find the best hiding spot. But it points out here something that's so true of little kids, like real little kids. Often, they don't really hide their whole body, right? What a little kid will do is they'll just cover their eyes. And you've ever done this with a, like an infant or a toddler. You'll, you'll try to surprise them with peekaboo, right? And they'll cover their eyes. And, and to their mind, when they cover their eyes, they can't see you. So what do they think? You can't see me, Right? And so they cover their eyes or they put their head in their lap and then they believe they've just disappeared. They're just hidden. You can't see them. They're unable to be seen. And often we can do this even in our walk with Christ. We think because we've covered our eyes and we've buried our heads that God somehow can't see us. He can't see that what we've done or where we're going. The thought process is this. If I can't see you, you can't see me. Is this not what we do when we fail to confess our sin in prayer before God? In our sin and shame, we often attempt to hide, but confession is a key component of a vibrant relationship with God. And Daniel is doing the same thing we saw Ezra do. Now, one of the things about Ezra chapter 9, and if you weren't with us, I encourage you to jot it down and study that on your own. But when you read Ezra's amazing priestly prayer, you're going to discover the same thing that Daniel does that many prophets do and that Ezra does is he doesn't say they have sinned. The people have sinned. It's often we have done this. We as a nation, we as a people, our people have done, like he's lumping himself in with them. But let's be real for a moment. Daniel has hearkened to the word of the Lord. Daniel has courageously followed God. Daniel has stood for the things that were right and true and yet suffered consequences for them. So when he's saying we've done this, he's even humbling himself to say, I'm not arrogant. I'm not proud. I'm not prideful in that I've done all these great things and they haven't. He's humbling himself before the Lord. And so here in Daniel 9, we see that idea, that idea of confession coming forth, which is common throughout all of Scripture. This is what God invites us into in our relationship with him. Confession, free and open and able to express the depths of our hearts. In our uh, curriculum here in the study, it says this, confession of sin is needed to maintain a right relationship with God. Confession of sin is needed to maintain a right relationship with God. This is not just true before we come to Christ and we come to Christ in that moment of salvation and, and what an amazing thing it is when we realize our sin before God and we realize I've broken God's laws and I, I confess that I'm a sinner in need of a savior and I receive Christ. Our confession, our practice and habit of confession doesn't stop at that moment. So many great Christian theologians have said that repentance, which is really what we're talking about, that idea of confessing and repenting, should be a stable of the Christian life. Like we should always be finding ways to realize how we've drifted or not fulfilling the things that God has for us. It's not about beating ourselves up or tearing ourselves down. It's about being honest. It's about being real with God. Daniel didn't have the complete word of God as we know it, but he did have some of it. Daniel looked to Jeremiah, who lived within a few decades of Daniel as an authoritative prophet of God. He studied Jeremiah's prophecies and prayed about what he was reading. And if you've ever read Jeremiah, you realize he does not hold anything back. He lays it all out for the people. He says exactly, this is why this is happening, and this is why you're being judged. And remember 
How did the Israelites end up in captivity? Who's responsible for the Israelites being in captivity? God is. They sinned. That's their responsibility. But the Bible actually says in Jeremiah, I believe it's Jeremiah 29, the earlier part of 29 before verse 11, which we take out of context. But before that, God says, I placed them in captivity. So yes, the people sinned, but who really put them in captivity? God did. Why? Because God was using the Babylonians to refine his people, to draw his people to repentance, to refine them that they would be the missionaries they were supposed to be all along. But again, like human beings are, we read Ezra's words after they get back, some time has gone on and they're still practicing the same things that we read in Judges that led them into captivity. So Daniel reads Jeremiah. He's convicted by it. Now, now what does that tell us about Jeremiah's writings? We know Daniel's heard from God, right? He has a relationship with God. He's communicating with God through prayer. He's faithfully serving God. And he knows the Lord. And he's reading Jeremiah's words and quoting that as authority. So what does that tell us what we can do with Jeremiah? Yeah, we can see it as the word of God. This is important when this happens in Scripture. So many times we don't catch this. We can trust the Word of God, not only because it's the Word of God, but because other authors of the Word of God, others who are followers of Christ or followers of God, the apostles, the disciples, whoever we're talking about, they, if they advocate those things as Scripture, that gives weight and authority to those things. Peter does this with Paul's writings and so on and so forth. And so we see this all throughout Scripture. Daniel must have known he would never see his homeland again. He's realizing his age, the timeline. He's thinking, I'll never see Jerusalem again. Yet he still prayed a prayer of confession and petition on behalf of his people, entreating God to the very thing he promised to do in the writings of Jeremiah the prophet, bring the people back to Jerusalem after the giving period of time was complete. So God knows the deepest recesses of our hearts, right? Have you ever stopped to think about that? Like, that's pretty scary. Here's the truth. You don't know the deepest recesses of your heart, right? We see fruit of how dark our hearts can be. We see fruit of how dark the human heart can be. And we see it all over our world today. And it's, it's seemingly, it, it's, it's more aware to us. It, it is getting worse in some ways. But God actually sees the deepest recesses of your hearts. And what we practice, when we practice rather confession... We are actually desiring, saying, this is my heart in the flesh, but I'm confessing these things so that my heart will become more and more aligned with your heart, Lord. That I would think like you think, that I would feel the way that you feel. We are actually desiring to have our entire being changed into thinking and feeling and responding as God does. We want to be cleansed of all unrighteousness, 1 John 1, 9. We want to ask him to cleanse us from the inside out. We know that confession is beneficial to our spiritual lives, cleansing and drawing us back into walking in the light as he is in the light. We know that we've seen practically, I don't know if you've seen this, but you hold on to something and you don't want to confess it to the Lord for whatever reason we've told ourselves. And then we finally do have that moment of saying, Lord, my sin grieves me because I know it grieves you. And I think that's different than saying, my sin grieves me because I feel bad about my sin. And I think those are two very different things. I can feel bad about my sin. I can feel bad about how my sin affects someone else. But until I stop and realize, no, no, no. The definitive line here is it grieved the father. It breaks the father's heart. What did David say? I've sinned against heaven and against mankind or earth. So heaven first, then others. When we realize our sin grieves the Father, I believe that gives us an idea and a perspective that helps us a victory over that sin. Because I'm not just feeling bad because I feel bad about it or I feel bad about how it affects somebody else. It's beneficial because it changes the way I look at my sin. It changes how I even feel about my sin. So we know it's beneficial. We've seen it beneficial in our lives, but it draws us to a question. And we've been going through a lot of these discussion-type questions, and so I'll ask it again, and we can discuss that and share openly. If we know it's beneficial to us to confess our sins, what happens when we don't confess our sins? I'm not talking about unbelievers. I'm talking about believers, followers in Christ. Small group tonight, okay? Look around the room, believers in the room. When we choose not to confess as Christians, that means also Christians can sin, Right? First John 1 John 1.9 was written to the church. 
There's no such thing as sinless perfection this side of heaven. But we should sin less as followers of Christ. That's our goal, right? But if we know it's beneficial to confess, then what happens when we choose not to confess? What happens when we choose not to confess? Yeah, Avi. Mm. Like you are just miserable. Mm-hmm. Great point. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So it's like there's so many physical, there's actual physical effects. That's what David's saying, right? My bones ache. My bed is soaked with sadness. There's a physical response to unconfessed sin because really guilt is really what we're feeling. Um, and so that's going to affect us physically. And then I love what you said there. When we don't confess, we actually harm other people's growth in Christ. Because if I, and I'm not saying we confess everything, everybody, I'm talking about to the Lord first, and then we're open and humble to others. But when they don't know that we too stumble, when they stumble, what are they going to do? Well, I got to hold this in because I go to a perfect church with perfect people and nobody does anything wrong, right? Absolutely. Renee. Hmm. Yeah. That's okay. It happened to Sandra last week. We just came back to her in a few minutes and she was fine. We really did. We had to pause. Jeff Morgan said something, and then she goes, I got it. And Jeff went, okay, go, Sandra. So, and you're welcome. Yeah. Yeah. So we actually try to run away from it. We, we distract ourselves from it, right? Um, and God, I love what you said there. God lets us go through that season. And we're, we're miserable, we feel it, but we're distracted, we're trying to be busy, and God's just saying, whenever you're ready, we can deal with this. Absolutely. I think, too, I mean, I, I, distractions can not only be just things in the world or, or distractions in career or whatever. I think we can get distracted by ministry. By actually doing ministry, we can distract ourselves from the proper relationship with God, right? We get so caught up in, we actually try to make ourselves feel better, right? Lord, I know I haven't dealt with this yet, but look what, I'm, look what I'm doing over here, right? It's like a, a magic trick. Don't look over here. No, no, look over here. Pay attention to what's going on over here. So absolutely, we can distract away from it, and we go through that season of being distant from the Lord, too, in that regard. What else uh, happens when we choose not to confess our sins? Avi. Well, to go along with what Renee was saying, you can start to sear your conscience. Mm, yeah. I mean, Sure. Yeah, yeah. If you get to the point where you start to sear your conscience and justify your sin so much, mm-hmm. you're going to find yourself somewhere where you never thought you would ever Yes, be. yes. And I love what you said there. So, so as a follower of Christ, God, as his children, he's going to, he's going to bring um, retribution. He's going to bring... Um, consequences. And he's, he's going to draw us back to him at some point. Um, I talked to some people, it's, it's five years, it's 25 years. Who knows what the, how the Lord's working. But, but if you are his, you will come back. That's the truth of scripture. However, we can take ourselves down a road that we never needed to walk down, but we chose to, again, sin a little more, sin a little more, and all of a sudden it becomes more and more tolerable. Um, I just saw a little clip I don't know, Friday maybe, and I thought it was a great illustration. And this person said that they were uh, making deliveries, and they delivered to a, I think it was a water treatment plant, something like that. And as this person got on the grounds and got up near the door where they were going to be making this delivery, there was a horrible stench, and they just couldn't believe the smell of all that stuff they were doing there and everything. 
And my first thought was like, you know, Vlasic when they're doing the peppers and all that stuff. And some of the stuff smells good. Some of the stuff doesn't smell good. I also thought about, you know, where we live. Obviously, they spray the fields with very pleasant smelling things, right, all around us. So anyway, just imagine that, some kind of a stench. And the door opens up, and this guy doing the receiving, he, like, as the door opens, more of that smell just hits this guy. And he said he was taken back a little bit. And as they're talking for a minute or two, he goes, man, he said, I'm really sorry. I don't mean any offense by this, but how can you work here? Like, that smell is horrendous. And the guy looked at him and said, well, you, you kind of get used to it. After time, you just don't even notice it as much anymore. And I love what this guy said. He said, that to him is sin in the believer's life. The more we're around it, the, the first time we're around it, it reeks, it stinks, it burns our nostrils. It just gives us an upset stomach. It just causes us to be nauseous. But we kind of push through that for the perceived pleasures that we think we're going to receive. And the more we do that, the more and more that stench kind of doesn't really bother us. We kind of get used to it. And I thought about this when I first moved to Brown City and I was at the school and went outside and there was just that stench of, of manure from the fields. And I said, man, I don't know how you guys can deal with this. Like every year, every couple times a year, this reeks. And that's what they told me. You'll get used to it. And so to me, when I think about this idea of refusing to confess our sins, I think that's what we're talking about. We just get closer and closer to that stench. And all of a sudden we don't really notice it as much anymore. But just because we're not noticing it doesn't mean it hasn't affected us. And I truly think that stench gets on us. And now our lives are not that beautiful aroma of, a, of an offering to the Lord. I think it becomes disgusting to him because we're walking and acting and living like we think we're fine. But we just absolutely reek in the stench of that sin. And so to me, I think that's a big part of it. We, we kind of can lose that ability, right? I always think of those commercials, those, is it Febreze, the nose blind, right? You just get nose blind to something. That's kind of what I feel like we do as, as Christians. But we see there are benefits to, benefits to confessing. So moving on in Daniel, unless there's any other thoughts on that. What happens when we choose not to confess before we move on? Renee, yes. Yes. Yeah, I, I truly believe that's what one of the biggest ways we grieve the Holy Spirit is that way, right? We, we continue in sin. I think that grieves the Spirit and it breaks the Father's heart, absolutely. It can also make grace vain. We actually take grace for granted and we think we're fine, but we're actually abusing the grace of God because we're continuing in a sin that we, Paul says in Romans 6, 1, God forbid, don't do that. Why? Because it's misapplying the grace of God in our lives, Right? Now, God is good and God is gracious and we are his children. He will not let us go, but we're losing the benefits, missing out on the blessing of the relationship in those moments, right? So Daniel chapter 9, in the next couple of verses, we're going to see that confession draws our focus to God. It draws our focus back to God. Daniel 9 verses 7 through 10. Who'd like to read that for us this evening? Daniel 9, 7 through 10. Oh, yeah, Daniel. Sorry, I, I didn't see either. Thank you, ma'am. So here we see that confession, again, draws our focus to God, who is righteous, compassionate, and forgiving. So when we understand confession and repentance, we can actually have our focus drawn back to God. And when we focus on him, we remember again, we were renewed in our thinking, like Romans 12, 1 and 2 says. And we remind ourselves by the spirit that he is righteous so he is worthy of us coming and giving all praise and honor. We need to submit to his authority, his holiness, but he's also compassionate and forgiving. And I think if we forget those two things, we know he's holy, but if we don't know he's compassionate and forgiving, we're never going to come in confession because we're going to be afraid because we failed. But rather, if we know he's holy, we'll say, Lord, I, I submit to your authority. I'm under your mighty hand because you are greater than I am. You are holy, worthy of all praise. I am sinful. I have fallen and I come in repentance. I come in confession, receiving those things. So Daniel highlighted three components of God's character in his prayer. First, he said, God is righteous. 
God's righteousness means God is morally and ethically right, and he only conducts himself in that way. That God is always morally and ethically right. He is never wrong. Everything he does is right. And I remember sitting in one of our theology classes in college, and we were talking about some situation. I think it was a, a, one of our counseling classes, and something was being talked about, about something not fair. Like, like could God do this? Because that's not fair. And it was early on, and I never really heard somebody say it so bluntly, but the professor just said, well, time out. You can't do that. And the kid was like, what are you talking about? And he said, you can't question God's fairness because everything God does is right. He said, you can disagree with it, but it's never wrong. And I thought, how, what a clear understanding of the righteousness of God. He is right in everything he does all the time, never in error. And we struggle with that. Why? Because we are not righteous. You are not morally and ethically perfect in all things. We stumble and fall all the time. And so he is fully righteous. So he is completely objective, completely righteous and holy and perfect. And so we come and submit to him and confess to him. Why? Because we're not him, right? And we're under his authority. But also he doesn't stop there. He is merciful, according to Daniel. God is sympathetic to his people, but his compassion isn't mere sentiment. It compels him to act. I think we have to understand that. God is sympathetic to his people. We can be sympathetic, but we may not respond in action to somebody that's going through a situation. We may not be able to respond. We can just empathize or sympathize with the person. But God's mercy leads him to his compassion. And that's not just sentiment. It compels him to act. He has to act in response to his mercy, because that's who he is. So he then, Daniel says, third thing, forgives. So God is righteous, God is merciful, and God forgives. Because of God's love and mercy, he is willing to pay the price for our sins, to grant us forgiveness. As we confess our sins to God, we should also think about these characteristics. So Daniel understood this, and it led him to confession. One of the reasons I think we don't confess our sins to God is because we forget one of these things. We either think it's no big deal. It's not a big deal. I don't need to confess it. It's not a big deal. We're forgetting his righteousness, his holiness, right? Who he is and who we are not. What he saved us from and what he saved us to, which is to walk in holiness as he is holy. And then if we think he's righteous and holy, we know he's perfect and high and all of those things and, and lifted up. But then we forget his forgiveness or his mercy or his grace. We'll live in guilt and shame and never confess because I know he's so holy and I'm not. I can't even go in his presence. So we're forgetting the mercy and compassion of God. Two things I'd like to point out in this passage. Some terms that Daniel uses. The term, again, righteousness in verse 7. The word has a twofold connotation. This implies what is legally right and what is morally right based on God's holy character. In no way did Israel's sin or condition affect God's righteousness. God's righteousness was both the basis for the judgment on Israel and also for Daniel's prayer for compassion and forgiveness. So it was God's righteousness that led to punishing Israel, but it was also God's righteousness that led Daniel to say, I'm asking for your forgiveness because I know you always do what is right. And your word tells us if we come this way, we repent of our sins and we, we seek you, the right thing that you will do is you will forgive us and restore us to that covenant standing. So you see how Daniel is emphasizing both aspects of God's righteous character. Not just that he'll do what's legally right or the sense of if you break the law, there is judgment, but also he'll do what's right to his own promise. That if you come and confess, he will stand by his word. He won't say, no, you've gone too far. You've messed up too many times. I'm done forgiving you. No, because that's not righteousness. He's not doing what is right according to his own promises. The second phrase I find kind of interesting as I was looking through the curriculum here and reading through the text is he uses the phrase, the confusion of faces. This is in verses 7 and 8. Confusion of faces, or the confusion of the face. Literally, this translates to the shame of our faces, or the shame of face. Open shame. Shame and loss or confusion of face were powerful concepts 
in biblical times and still are in Eastern life. This is not mere personal embarrassment. When you think about somebody who gets embarrassed, what happens to their face? Turns red, right? That's a sign of embarrassment. Like, oh, I'm so embarrassed that happened to me because I slipped and fell or I tore a hole in my pants and and the rear end or whatever happened, okay? Like whatever embarrassing thing happens, it's not just that type of embarrassment. It actually has an objective and social dimension. So this phrase implies not just individual embarrassment, but public shame that results in disgrace and mockery, affecting people psychologically, resulting in self-loathing and a visible change of countenance. So when Daniel says, we have confusion of face, he's saying, we as a nation, we are publicly shamed and we've shamed our God because of the behavior that we've done. And we're being mocked by others because of what's happened here. And they're mocking our God. Now we see this in the Old Testament all throughout, right? Oftentimes people will mock God or mock his people. Uh, Goliath did this with David. We see also those, what did they do at the foot of the cross? They mocked Jesus. They mocked him because they believed he was a person of shame. They didn't understand the big picture here. But here, Daniel's saying, no, no, we've earned this mockery. We've earned this shame because we've broken your law. Here we understand that when this happened, Israel's shame was because of the destruction of their temple and city, the desolation of their land, and their humiliating captivity in distant lands. Daniel is saying they received exactly what they had earned. God, on the other hand, is still the same God worthy of all praise. Because when Israel did not deserve it, God gave them mercy and forgiveness by grace. So, when you think about this idea of confession and these qualities we just talked about, for your own, for your own life personally, what qualities of God move you to confession and repentance? And it can be some of the things we've talked about. It can be something different. But when you think about the qualities of God, the characteristics of God, what moves you in your personal life? By the way, we all confess and repent. This is not anything one of us is doing more than the other. We all are living in this journey. But what are the qualities of God that lead you to confession and repentance? Yeah, Avi. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, you know, Jesus peels off your eyes and he gives you a heart of flesh to be able to love and adore him and all of these things. But I think, like, and, you know, and, and the longest time I swam in the circles and, and still mostly do love, like, the holiness of God. Mm-hmm. Is God and all of these things and, you know, and not so much the love of God. And I'm starting now to, like, just really camp in the love of God. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Without, you know, how he balances it with the mercy and compassion mm-hmm. and forgiveness. And without that, right, I mean, he wants to come to a scary God, right? Right, yeah. So, but also, like, even really Christmas, like, right now especially, is about love. Mm. That really is what is, I don't want to say consuming. So, let's keep talking. So, yes, like, yeah, yeah. So, we don't want to give it away because she's speaking at the ladies' event. That's what she was referring to there. I don't want to give too many nuggets of truth away here. Any ladies next Saturday are you going to be like, that, I've never heard that before. That was amazing. That's the greatest thing I've ever heard. But no, absolutely. So the idea of just the simplicity of the love of the gospel, that what he did for us in our desolate state, man, how could we not continue to come to him knowing how much he loved us? Absolutely. Marshall, I saw your hand. Mm, yeah. Right, right. Yeah, no, that's great. When we confess that, that whatever it is that God is drawing us to confess, that we give that, we have that strength from the Lord to say, okay, I'm, I'm going to overcome this in Christ. Like, I'm not going to repeat that. I'm going to learn from where I've been and strive for something greater. Absolutely. Yeah. Anyone else? The qualities of God that lead you to confession and repentance. Pastor Greg. Mm. In the sense that if there was any one 
That's great. Yeah. Yeah, I love that. So just the consistent, unchanging love of God. That, and I love that illustration that if we go to somebody who's a, a human relationship and we fail them and have to confess to them as many times as we've done God, they would just be, we're done. We're, I don't want nothing to do with you. But God's unchanging in that regard that he will always allow us to come to him. Now, again, we guard against taking that to an unhealthy Christian level, right? We just throw the grace card out there. That's fine. God's fine. God will forgive me. Obviously, that's not what we're talking about. But that idea of just genuinely coming and saying, Lord, I'm sorry. And he just restores us every single time and forgives us every single time. It's unchanging love. Absolutely. Hmm. Mm. Yeah. 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 Mm. Yes, yes. So you're saying the justice of God actually draws you to confession because naturally you want to ignore that part of God's character to go into the grace mode. Is that kind of what you're saying? Okay. And reminding of the justice draws you into confession. That's a great point. Because I find that a lot of people, it's one or the other, right? It's, man, I, I love the grace of God and that draws me to confession. But then some people, are, they, they over exert that, right? Like, it's like, oh, no, it's fine. I don't have to say anything to God. He's fine. He's fine. It's kind of like the, the husband and wife. The husband always says, I'll tell my wife if I stop loving her because I'm never going to change loving her because she complains. I never say I love her, but I still love her. I'm just going to let her know if anything changes. That mindset, right? With God, we can do that. Like, I obviously still love her. Why do I need to say it every day? Versus the other people who are like, I constantly have to do this because I'm afraid if I don't say it every day, she's going to get mad at me. And I feel like people approach God that way. If I don't make this right, he's going to kick me out. Or it's like, that's eh, no big deal. He'll be fine with me. Neither one of those is healthy, right? It's that balance of he is just, but he is merciful. And we have to remember both of those things. But it's hard for us as human beings to do that, right? Because we don't think that way. We love making sure people serve justice when they do something wrong, right? You're, no, you're going to pay for that. And I'll tell you guys, I, I just, and I don't want to step on any toes. I hope this doesn't offend anybody. I don't know if it would, but... Um, some of you guys have heard the, the young man that committed the, the Oxford shooting was just sentenced to basically multiple counts of life in prison. And, and Sandra had it on her phone and was watching just, you know, just jumping ahead to basically the end and heard little clips here and there of things. And I remember thinking how tragic that really is. Not in the sense that that person shouldn't pay for those crimes, but there wasn't just the victims that were killed that day that are victims of this, this situation. This young man is a victim of this situation. Now, he committed the acts and he should be held responsible. But his life is now gone. And I, I just feel like when I see people talk about things like that, it's almost like they're instantly like, well, yeah, but he did and he did. And they just want to justice, justice, justice. And I get that and there should be justice. But man, like I feel like... Are we praying that that young man will come to Christ? And like, like he's valuable. God, God died for him. And, and so, I don't know. I feel like we, sometimes we love justice when it's other people. But when it's us, we go, oh, please give me grace. Please give me grace. Please give me mercy. So again, I just see that in our, in our human understanding, we're flawed in this. Which we shouldn't be surprised because we're fallen and flawed creatures, right? Avi. Yes. Yes. Yep. Yep. Yeah. And absolutely. And, and what I love about that story is the only one who could lead her to death and kill her in judgment was Christ. And he chose not to. And he gave her grace. But again, it's not one-sided. Because what does he tell her after he picks? I, I envision him kind of picking her up off her face and, you know, kind of brushing her off a little bit. What does he tell her? Go and sin no more. So what was he acknowledging? Yeah, what you were just doing and most likely got caught doing, by the way, how, how did they know that was going on? How did the religious leaders, maybe because there was a little setup here, right? So anyway, 
they're, they're, they're brought to that situation. And Jesus says, no, no, that was wrong. That was sinful. Go and sin no more. I don't condemn you. And I love that because he's giving grace while acknowledging sin. And, and I believe we can do that in our relationships today. We can acknowledge something is sinful. I think people, if they commit crimes, right, they break the law, they should be held responsible. I have no problem with that. But I feel like as, as even as believers, we should rise above just this idea of like, yeah, he's going to get his. Like, because I don't think that's how we want God to treat us. Uh, at least we pray he doesn't treat us that way, right? Moving on, because we're almost out of time. So here we are. Uh, so again, uh, Daniel chapter 9. Let's look at verses 17 through 19. 17 through 19. Last little part of the passage. And then we'll wrap up. So one more volunteer to read. Avi, thank you. So 17 through 19. All right. Thank you, ma'am. So one of the last points we want to talk about tonight is that when we seek the forgiveness of God and we trust him to respond favorably. Now, what do we mean by favorably? We mean he's going to respond with forgiveness. Notice how Daniel prayed in terms, again, of we, us, we, right? He's lumping himself in. Daniel acknowledged that he, too, needed God's forgiveness and asked God to grant it. Do we see how forgiveness that we experience in the person of Christ in the New Testament is not new to the word of God. Like, like that's not a new concept here. Daniel is crying out forgiveness the same way the thief on the cross cried out for forgiveness, the same way so many in scripture have cried out for forgiveness. This is not a new thing that God is enacting. His grace has always been and will always be those who come to God in humility and acknowledge of the acknowledgement of their sin can expect to find forgiveness. That's the promise of God. If you repent and call on my name, I will forgive. I will save. And what a beautiful promise that is. I, I don't have to muster up enough of something to earn it or to make it happen. It's simple faith. And again, this doesn't necessarily mean the removal of consequences, but forgiveness does mean a restored relationship with God. So if I commit a sinful act, and I confess that sin, as I should, and I'm a follower of Christ, and I receive forgiveness of that sin, I didn't get saved again, right? What does that forgiveness bring? Restoration of the relationship, okay? I remove this barrier that I put between me and him. And so now there's a restoration of the relationship, but guess what may come out of that sinful choice? Consequences. Now, some consequences are visible, public. Some consequences are inward, right? Some things that we carry around the rest of our lives from sins that we've committed that nobody else even knows, but, but part of the consequence is we reap that, now we sow that, and so now we always will carry that weight with us. We'll never get rid of that, and maybe that's a good thing because it allows us, as Marshall said, to look back and say, I don't want to go through that again. No, I don't want to do that again. And so again, here we see that, yes, there's forgiveness, but it doesn't necessarily remove the consequences. And by the way, what's the reason? What's the foundation of Daniel's belief that God is going to do something favorably on behalf of his people and this city? He said it in the text. What's his reason or what is his, he believes God's motivation is to respond favorably to his prayer. Avi. Yeah, it says it right there, right? Look again at verse 19. Uh, he says here, O Lord, hear, O Lord, forgive, O Lord, hearken and do, defer not for thy own sake, O my God, for thy city and thy people are called by thy name. Remember he said a little while ago, I mean, we don't want to do anything that's going to cause shame publicly of our God. And so because this is all for your name, for your sake, would you do this? Again, God doesn't act among humanity primarily for our blessing. Now, we are blessed from his acts of love and grace, like Avi was saying. We are overwhelmingly blessed, both here in this world and in the world to come, the life to come. But God's primary motivation for doing those things is not you. 
right? His primary motivation is for him, his glory, his honor, his praise. However, part of that equation is us. But remember, God didn't save us because of us. He saved us because of his glory. John, or Jesus says this in John 17. I'm doing all of this for your glory and that we would be glorified as God. And so again, it's the same mindset here as we see in Daniel. So, kind of a quick question. We've got a couple minutes left. Just give some answers, maybe some more kind of uh, bullet point answers, if you will, if you think of things. How can our church practically foster an environment where transparency and forgiveness are valued? Now, that's how the curriculum words the question. But I would just simplify it. How can our church foster an environment of forgiveness and transparency? Both between us and God, we want to help people to know that, but also even among one another. How can we foster that type of thinking as a church? I'm not saying we haven't up to this point. Um, I've been in only a few churches, but I believe we've encouraged this over the years. But, but how can we continue to foster that kind of environment as a church? What are some simple things that maybe we can do or live by that would help us to do that as a church? Renee. Mm. I love that. Just if you hear something and there's some kind of a gossip about whatever, shifting the conversation back to the Lord. Absolutely. Love that. Any other thoughts? Sandra. Yeah, I love that. So train up our children to be forgiving, to have a, a habit of confession and repentance with them and the Lord and others. But then also, how do they learn that? Well, they learn that through us. So it's not just teaching a lesson on this, but it's also practically living this out before them, right? And so that way they'll see it and hear it being taught. And that hopefully will raise up a generation of believers that will practice this as well. Forgiving others, realizing we're forgiven, and confessing and repenting before the Lord individually, right? Any other thoughts? Marshall? Sure. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. No, so we, we address the sin in a way that is both loving, gracious, humble, meek, right? Forgiving, right? We don't ignore it and go, oh, I love you. So I'm not going to bring up that sin. No, it's more, I love you so much. I need to bring up this issue. I want to draw you to the truth of God's word. And I'm also going to do so because I've been forgiven and I've needed his grace. And so again, it's a balance of how we go about that, right? Galatians 6.1, right? Go in grace, go, go meet in meekness because you could be in that sin tomorrow, right? So we need to go humbly. Terry. Mm. Yeah. 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 Shunning them or kicking them away. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love that. So, so there's two groups of Christians, right? There's the ones that have fallen and, and repent and know they've done wrong. We come alongside them in a way to restore them. And there's Christians who have sinned and fallen and refused to re- admit and repent that they've done wrong. We still want to come alongside them, but that's a different picture, right? One, we're leading to restoration. One, we're leading to repentance. And so we still come alongside both and we try to love them. We don't ostracize them. I love what you said there. We don't kick them out. We don't shun them. But we also need to come alongside them in a, in a way that's loving enough to say, hey, God can still use you. Or, listen, if you don't make some different decisions, there's going to be consequences. And you say that lovingly. And I love that. Coming alongside them in relationship. Right? Renee. A hundred percent. Yeah. 
prayer. Yeah, if you're a praying church, I believe you're a repenting church, right? Because what, what happens when we pray and we haven't confessed in our personal lives? When you're praying and you know there's something you haven't told the Lord, what's the Lord doing by the Spirit? He's just bringing that right up. And what do we try to do? No, let me pray for the missionaries, Lord. Let me pray for brother so-and-so who's sick. I want to pray about them. I don't want to pray about that. And the Spirit's going, that's fine, you can, but we're going to talk about this, right? And we've all been there, right? So when we're praying, it's going to draw our hearts and minds towards confession because that's a natural overflow of that relationship with God. And as we pray as a church, that will help others to feel transparent to say, they don't need to lay out the whole laundry list, but hey, would you pray for me? I'm struggling in this. And now we as a church pray for that person and lift them up and God can do a work there, right? Yeah, Marshall. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Yeah. And so the goodness of God draws us to repentance because repentance leads to the fruitfulness of the Christian life, right? We're not going to be miserable physically, emotionally, spiritually. Avi. Right. Leave your gift and go and make it right first. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Right. And I think that, like what Terry said as well, like that's going to like come along. And one of the um, sayings I like is, it's, you know, it's not like I'm better than thou. It is like one beggar showing another beggar where the food is. Yeah. Yeah. Like, I love that. We're all, we're all begging. We're all begging for grace and mercy. And here it is. Come, let me show you. Yep. Right? Yep. This is where, this is where eternal life is. This is where yeah. Yeah, I love that. It's not that I'm better than anyone. I'm just one beggar helping another beggar to find the food, right? I love that. Absolutely. Yeah, and I think so the more we know we've been forgiven, the more we're likely to go to him and ask for forgiveness and repentance and and forgive others. So as a church, how does that dynamic wash out? Well, I think it comes down to our conversations with others in the church sharing about how much we've been forgiven, sharing about how amazing God's love is, um, preaching and teaching in different levels, in different ways, communicating the gospel. So really what we're saying is a gospel church, right, that's centered in the gospel, focused on the gospel, elevating Christ and his glorious death, burial, and resurrection will create a church culture that leads the church towards confession and repentance. Equally so, a church that centers on performance, in a legalistic mindset of just do and do and work and do and look the part, I think that drives people away from repentance and confession because we think it's about us. And when we fall and fail and we know we're not as good as we thought we were, we're going to really be kind of taken down by that. And we're not going to be as apt to go to him. So I think having a gospel-centered church, a gospel-centered mindset will lead to this kind of a church. So in conclusion, uh, we're already five minutes over, so I appreciate your compassion and grace there. But um, kind of in conclusion, I want to, every week, the, the curriculum gives us some application steps, some things that we can apply. So there's three things again this week. So I'm just going to read through here. And then again, I encourage you to maybe ask the Lord how you might apply one of these things, um, this week. So the first thing it asks when it talks about what actions will you take in response to the study, uh, accept God's forgiveness, accept God's forgiveness. So read 1 John 1, 9. And once you have confessed, rest in the truth that you are forgiven. I love that. So as a follower of Christ, we know we're saved. We know we're forgiven. But sometimes we don't rest in that forgiveness. We wrestle in that. We feel like we've got to somehow, we're saved by grace, but we've got to somehow keep it by something else. And so I love that. Read 1 John 1, 9. If you need to confess, confess, and then rest in his forgiveness. Uh, another application point here, trust his word. Trust his word. Um, this recommends writing down Psalm 32, 
5 through 7. So Psalm 32, 5 through 7 on a note card. Uh, Put it someplace you will see it often and be reminded that when you confess and repent, he protects and delivers. So Psalm 32, 5 through 7. And then the last application point here is pray like Daniel. So how can you use scripture in your prayers? And and in our men's Bible study on prayer um, here not that long ago, we went through this and we talked about using scripture in our prayers and praying scripture. Um, How can you prepare to meet God in prayer? So does your prayer life look like I just kind of jump into prayer, make some demands and some requests, and then I'm off and running? Or do I take time to actually think about who I'm praying to, what I'm going to pray about, how I'm praying to him. And maybe that again will set us up for more successful prayer life. And then lastly here with like the pray like Daniel point, how can you humble yourself physically as you confess your sins? So sometimes a different physical posture can actually bring about a different emotion to that prayer. So maybe if you need to, and we see this all through scripture, we get on our knees. In some places in scripture, they lay flat on the ground. Um, I'm not talking about, you don't have to like, you know, rent your clothes and ash and all that. But why did they do that? Because it was a visible, symbolic way of saying, this is how I feel inside. I feel shamed and dirty and guilty. And, and I love the story of David when he's praying that way. And then the baby is taken. And then they go to David and try to tell him like, hey, this is what just happened. And the servants don't want to tell him, Right. Because he's already obviously lamenting and he's upset and all that. And they're literally scared. He's going to like freak out and just kill us, like have us killed. And so they, they deliver the news to David and he gets up, he cleanses himself. He goes to the temple and he worships. And they're so confused. And he actually takes a moment to praise God. And he says, I can't bring the baby back to me, but I can go to the child. And so to me, again, it's about that perspective. So there's moments where we fall on our face and we say, God, I I need you in confession and repentance. But then when we know we're forgiven and we know that we're cleansed, as 1 John 1, 9 says, we can then transition to worship and praise. And that's what Pastor Keith was saying, right? We're drawn to repentance through the justice of God and we're overwhelmed by that. But then once we realize we've received his mercy, now we center in praise. And I think I got that sort of right. Something about, yeah, center in praise or sort of focus more on praise. I love that. Right? So what does the Bible tell us? Well, when we pray this way, we can transition from feelings of I'm not good enough to I'm not good enough, but he's amazing. He loves me and cares for me in the gospel, and so I praise him for it. So again, maybe one of these application points will help you in your walk with Christ this week. I pray that it does. Uh, let's go ahead and dismiss in prayer. And I've gotten the, the comfort of going to 715, 710 every Sunday night, so it's going to take me a little while to break that. So Bear with me. Next week, I'll shoot for 7.05. Okay, we'll take five minutes off, and we'll see how we do. But let's pray and ask the Lord. You guys know that's not going to happen. But let's pray and ask the Lord to give us a great rest of the night. Father, we thank you, Lord, for your gospel. We thank you, Lord, for your love and grace. We thank you for your righteousness, your mercy, your compassion, your forgiveness, which you extend to us freely, not because of anything we've done, but because of what Christ has done for us. We are your sons and daughters, and you invite us to come before you boldly to your throne and to ask of you and to seek your face. And Father, we praise you for all that you continue to do in our lives. Lord, I pray that this week that we would have an open relationship with you, Lord, where if there is something that we need to confess as we go through the week, a a passing moment, And maybe there's something small or that we would consider a small thing. Maybe there's a big thing. I I don't know, Lord. But I pray that we would give it to you. And Father, again, we thank you that apart from all of this, we are saved by the precious shed blood of Jesus Christ. We are not forgiven because we remember to confess every sin. We are forgiven because we've received the gift of salvation through Jesus Christ. So the sins that we've committed and confessed, the sins that we aren't even aware that we did, and the sins of omission that we will never know that we committed. It's all forgiven. It's all under the blood. And it has to be or else salvation is not sufficient. And so thank you for your sacrifice, for your overwhelming love. And so, Father, help us again to remember that when we give it to you, that you can use us and restore us. There is no sin that can take away your love from us. And so we confess that sin. May the memory of that sin not hinder us in our walk with Christ, but may we just move forward in praise, rejoicing in what you have done. Father, again, we thank you for all of this, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.